everyone, and welcome to another episode of Jalo of the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we are diving into the postmodern French fever dream that is Knife Plus Heart. Knife Plus Heart addresses the real-life horrors of being queer and the psychology behind being closeted, coming out, or simply just existing in this world. On this episode, we will be discussing queerness in cinema along with themes of facing monsters, both human and inhuman. We will also explore how horror movies have tackled real-life topics of the growing awareness of sexuality. My guest today is a licensed master social worker and therapist. She specializes in mental health therapy within psychiatric hospitals and outpatient treatment centers. She is also a returning guest to Jello of the Month Club. Please welcome back Lauren Fioco. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. <laughs> the last time you were on Jello of the Month Club, we talked about all the colors of the dark. That film included the theme of fractured psychology, and you had a lot of great things to say in that episode. Can you give a breakdown of your background and why this episode's theme is so special to you? So a little bit of my background, I have an undergrad and a master's in social work. And throughout that time, I have been in a variety of settings. So psychiatric hospitals, outpatient, foster care, um, and presently an outpatient mental health clinic where I'm doing um, fee-for-service work. So I've been in a bunch of different agencies, seen a lot of stuff. But this particular topic is pertinent to me, not just as a queer person, but given the climate of the world, I want to say in the last few years, but I'm more inclined to say the last forever um, with regard to LGBTQA, et cetera, issues. And as well in the field of social work, because it doesn't get a lot of specific attention. Yeah, and I think recently, like, with COVID, a lot of mental health issues are really coming to light. For sure. And it's been tough for some people, especially people that have therapists. They've been Mm -hmm. doing virtual therapy sessions, and that's, like, a lot to adjust on both sides. Right. It certainly adds some roadblocks because we were just talking prior to this began about engaging, like, a four-year-old over an iPhone You know, they look at them all day, but... Yeah, it's tough enough to get them to pay attention when you're in the same room as them, but virtually it's it's even harder. For sure. It's been a very strange few weeks. It's definitely... The world is a lot different now than the last time you were here. Personally, I have been coping by watching a lot of movies, as I usually do. I like to surround myself with art and cinema... Has there been anything that you've watched recently that you've really enjoyed and would like to suggest to the listeners? So um, this year has been challenging because I feel like 2019 and 18 were really strong cinematic years where there were a lot of like heavy hitters that came out. And then this year has been like, here's no movie. Yeah, here's that. (laughs) But I really, really enjoyed The Invisible Man. Yes. And I was not ready to enjoy it as much as I did. That was probably the last great film I saw in theaters. The last movie I actually saw in a movie theater was Sonic the Hedgehog. But, Same. <laughs> but I like Invisible Man way better than Sonic the Hedgehog. In fairness, I don't think that Sonic the Hedgehog was bad. It just wasn't the cinematic great that I'm putting on like my top ten of the year. Yeah. I recently rewatched The Invisible Man for the first time since I saw it in theaters. I bought the Blu-ray. I listened to the special features, which was live commentary with the director and I love the movie even more. So 
I would also recommend that everyone watch The Invisible Man. It's basically my MO where um, while everyone else who watches films either professionally or like half professionally as their side hustle or something, um, while they're making their top 10 of the year, I'm making my top 10 from like 2016 because I've finally got <laughs> around to watching these movies. Yeah. And I, I get the... I like that though. I would love to be like, I, sometimes I go back and I I will reference my top 10 list from previous years just to be like, if I, or if it's a movie that I hadn't seen and I just watched it, I'm like, oh man, like where would that have fell? That's true. Um, So what have you liked from 2016 or Um, previous years? Let me think. Okay. So I finally got around to watching Mandy and I'm really embarrassed to say that. Oh, Mandy was awesome. But I fucking loved it. Yeah. It was great. Like I, I was ready for it to be good because I'd heard nothing but positive feedback but I'm always jaded. But then going into it, I was like, this is every bit as excellent it's as amazing. I wanted it to be. Well, while we're on the topic of Mandy, mm-hmm. that's a movie that I would love for them to have on The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, which mm-hmm. I watch every Friday. And last Friday was Dead Heat, which is a silly uh. movie that I have <laughs> never seen before. And it was very silly. Silly is just the way I could describe it. Mm-hmm. And then Cannibal Holocaust. Which I saw probably when I was in high school. I think I saw that, you know, I was a teenager and I was just getting into, like, like torture porn kind of. That's when, like, torture porn was, like, pretty popular. So I, of course, watched that. I was reflecting on, um, like, oh, shit. I'm trying to think of, like, a viral phenomenon akin to it. But, like, Two Girls, One Cup, Cannibal Holocaust, Faces of Death. Like, all those things that were such, like, a uh, part of a certain generations like yeah i hate to say culture but it really was like this shock horror yeah i mean i knew luckily i knew what i was getting into i mm-hmm. i knew the scene so i knew when mm-hmm. to walk you know walk away and for mm-hmm. how long but mm-hmm. i want to see a cultural comeback of movies like blood feast like ones that are torture porny but still like visually very obviously fake yeah i just love the gratuitous like i can't be i think there's this film coming out it's about it's like a slasher mm-hmm. in a haunted water park <laughs> i think but th- i've only seen a photo where it's three girls going down a water slide like a tubed water slide mm-hmm. and inside there's two blades like cross like an x Sheesh. and there's one scene where you're like oh they're going down and then the next scene is like, them in like quarters i'm like oh. i have to see that i don't know what it's called but i have to see that that's on my radar Besides watching The Last Drive-In, I did spend my Memorial Day weekend at the virtual Chattanooga Film Festival. If you listen to the episode before this one, I do my my top five short films and my top five feature-length films, so listeners, listen to that one if you haven't already, because I watched 17 features and 37 short films, so I am not going to go over those right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe that you hold them all in your brain with such, like... I don't. Okay. I, I wish I was that good, it's a but Letterboxd. Le- <laughs> the Letterboxd app is yeah. the best thing ever because you log the movie, you mm-hmm. can rate it right after you've watched it, and then you can go back and be like, sort 
from rating, sort from what date I watched it, mm -hmm. and then I'm like, okay, I did really like that one. Oh, I didn't like that one. So thank you, Letterboxd. Please sponsor me. <laughs> sponsor me, Letterboxd. I mean, I do pay for a pro account, so yeah. I guess I could get like a free pro account, but it's only like $20 a year, so it's That's fine. And the the interface is very good. I never have, sometimes there's outages, like occasionally, but you know, it's like with any app, but Letterboxd is awesome. I did watch one more movie that I really enjoyed. It is not a new feature. I watched Little Shop of Horrors mm -hmm. for the first time, and it was amazing! You, I loved truly it! Truly the first time. Yes, wow. truly the first time. I knew what it was, mm -hmm. I knew who was in it, but I'm not really into musicals, so for years and years and years, I just kind of just put it on the back burner. Mm -hmm. But then I got HBO Max, and mm -hmm. the first movie I watched was Little Shop of Horrors, and I was immediately full circle back to Letterboxd. Mm -hmm. Five out of five on Letterboxd! Hell yeah! Now it's time to talk about the Jalo of the month, the movie of the month, Knife Plus Heart. I wanted to talk about this movie for a very long time. I've been wanting to talk about LGBTQA themes for a very long time. Knife Plus Heart made it onto my 2019 top films list. It played at festivals in 2018, then had a wide release in 2019. So technically it's a 2019 film. It's crazy that um, my introduction to this film, because I'm not like heavy into the film circuit, was you and I talking at a bar and you were talking about like on Halloween or something. Yeah, you're like, if you take one thing away from this conversation, go watch yeah. the movie. And I was like, it stayed in my bookmarked like yeah. safari tabs for a month. This episode will contain spoilers, so this is your spoiler warning. This one in particular is difficult to describe, at least in my view, it's hard to talk about what you like and don't like without spoiling. Especially, especially with the theme. Mm -hmm. there, there's no way to talk about some of the themes towards the end of the film without saying exactly what happens at the end of the film. Literally. So. Knife Plus Heart is a horror thriller directed by Jan Gonzalez. Set in the summer of 1979, Paris-based filmmaker Anne is a producer of third-rate gay porn. After her editor and lover leaves her, she tries to win her back by shooting her most ambitious film yet with her trusted sidekick, Archibald. Anne's cast of actors begin to be stalked and killed one by one by a serial killer who covers his face with a black leather mask. The cops, of course, are completely useless, leaving Anne to lead an investigation of her own. Then it gets weird. Yeah, it's hard to say that this film isn't kind of fundamentally a little weird from the start. Yeah. I'm thinking about, like, a casual viewer. I don't know. If my dad was just like, that looks like a good movie. He would be disturbed from, like, 0, 0. 0.001. Yeah. I totally feel that. <laughs> um, and this film, it may not be for everyone due to its very specific sleazy qualities, mm -hmm. which is the weirdness and the sleaziness. For sure. Um, I do find it to be true to the time period. And for some, the campy tone might be a turnoff, but I say stick with it. Unlike many other Jalo films, which tend to be focused on narrative and lacking additional plot threads that might distract from the mysteries at hand, Knife Plus Heart celebrates its characters. I do think this film is very much unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, how often do you get to watch a French queer Jalo film? With, like, true crime and yeah. has a lot of, like, 
important film tropes. Yep, exactly. Like, and it has all of these classic Jello tropes. Like it has like red herrings. Mm-hmm. There's like a peephole scene. I'm like, yes, I love a peephole scene. Mm-hmm. Goes and she visits an eerie town, like yeah. a creepy oh, town. Yeah. Of course, there's animals, which mm-hmm. that's very classic jollo Mm -hmm. um and then the close-up on film strips i felt like that was one that is more of a like specific jollo but you get dark room shots Mm -hmm. and like film strip shots and Mm -hmm. a lot of the artist themed Mm -hmm. jollo films so i really like that little nod it felt like a homage to literally how jollo films were constructed almost a shout out and i don't that's probably me looking way too far into it no i know i agree it has all of those classic nods to Jalo films, but there are also many references to the French gay porn scene during mm. the 1970s. The lead actress, Anne, is inspired by a gay porn producer in the 70s of the same name, and same with her cinematographer and her editor. Both of those characters are named after real-life people in the gay porn scene in France in the 70s. Which, admittedly, I know nothing about. No, me either. Me I just know this. Mo- I just know this film. <laughs> that, that's all I have for you is that little tidbit of information, so mm. put that in your back pocket. I feel like it's exceptional even while being sleazy yeah it's gorgeous yeah we'll talk about the cinematography in just a second there's a very extensive cast but i'll just talk about a few of the main players so we have vanessa parody who is a french actress mm-hmm. she plays anne who is an alcoholic tortured by unrequited love mm-hmm. and her own jealous tendencies she is the matriarch of this oddball chosen family in the porn industry and she passionately defends her work And also, she kind of has ESP, because there are some flashback scenes that appear in the photographic negative that I thought were really cool, and that was definitely a throwback to, like, classic Jalo films. Oh, certainly. I wasn't sure immediately when watching it if that was just, like, a true post-traumatic, like, type flashback, but then when she starts to see things that the viewer already knows, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is more, like, supernatural, like a classic Jalo. Yeah, same. Then we have, this is my favorite character, we have Nicholas Mari, who plays Archibald, a.k.a. Archie. Mm. This is what my notes say. Hot, gay, young Robert De Niro. Like, I'm right. like he looks like a young Robert De Niro. He was he my does. favorite. He was flamboyant. He was strong. He was her rock. He was Anne's rock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love that. I love, like, a good BFF. In some ways, he reminded me of, um, oh, shit. Uh, Klaus from the Umbrella Academy. Okay. He kind of vaguely reminded me of him. Awesome. I have not seen that, but I will uh, make a note of that. Yeah, for um, that umbrella. Stuff I've watched lately. Umbrella Academy. It's a series, and I think it just got renewed on Netflix, it right? It did, yeah. The, I read the comic when it came out in 2009 or whatever, and then suddenly the series is coming out, and I was like, whoa, hold on. Is it true? <laughs> Do you think it's true to the comics? Um, as I much mean, as it can be? The comic's a little weirder. Like, it's a little more supernatural, and, like, uh, some stuff goes down in space, which... I don't blame them for not addressing that because how do you do it without making it look stupid as yeah, hell? So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I like when films don't try it because sometimes yeah. it comes off worse if you do try. For sure, for sure. <laughs> I think they were like, let's be safe here. We have a couple other additional characters. We have Kate Moran. She plays Louise, who is Anne's ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. We have Nans, or Nans. He's the new guy, like the cute new guy who looks like capital t twink Foud. yeah <laughs> yeah Foud. so he looks like a previous actor mm-hmm. and that's one of the mysteries that unravels is mm-hmm. you know everyone casually mentions like oh you look just like this guy and he's like I, everyone tells me that and we're like oh, okay and then we realize why yeah uh we have terry jose and carl who are three other actors mm-hmm. that are under 
Anne's wing. Mm -hmm. And then this is another one of my favorite characters, Golden Mouth, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. the Fluffer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Uh... They just All I heard throughout the film was them calling the Fluffer Mouth. Right. And then when I looked up the official cast list, it mm -hmm. says Golden Mouth. I'm like, oh, okay. First name Golden, last name Mouth. Okay. Got Good it. Word. <laughs> <laughs> I, for whatever reason... When I do this with music or with movies, I cannot pick up a name or a lyric on the first read. Yeah. But my partner is, like, on it. He knows every... He's like, yeah, they said this in the song, and I'm like, I've been saying this name Oh, my gosh. I wish years. I had that, because with the Foud character, I had wrote down... First, I had, like, Freud, and then I had, like... Road, and then yeah. like there was maybe a T and an yeah. S in there and then finally they showed the name at the end I'm like, like that's oh. it that's the name <laughs> it doesn't help that it was also in French so I, you yeah, know different self. pronunciations this is a huh house <laughs> I know a little bit of a little French but mm -hmm. not not enough to pick up someone speaking really fast for sure for sure. I did think this film was gorgeous. Mm. I really liked the cinematography. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. it was like really well done, especially for it being kind of a throwback film. Right. I liked that it was shot on 35 millimeter, so mm -hmm. it had the lush graininess mm -hmm. to it, and it had the pops of the red and blue, which you know I love, because I love Argento, and that's like Ooh, classic that's so Argento. Much, yeah. All of the scenes that had the fluorescent lights in the background, like when she's walking down the street. Mm -hmm. I love the the movie shooter like the porn scene with the really dreamy lighting and the sheer white curtains mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. very like angel not the very end but the one kind of towards early earlier in the film um that one was like very mm -hmm. dreamy and like very mm -hmm. soft focus and that was really pretty mm -hmm. um, it reminded me of that classic like filmmaker in the 30s move where they would just mirror like lin uh, linoleum was me uh petroleum jelly on the lens to give an actress that sheer like dreamy look I did not know that little, oh, that little tip. Yeah. So when they would have, uh, in a 30s or 40s film, when they would have, like, a face shot of an actress just, like, yeah. genuinely looking upward, they'd smear a little bit of uh, Vaseline on the lens. Yeah, for just to get that, like, soft focus, mm -hmm. dreamy just, look. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Don't do that with your iPhone, though. Please don't. <laughs> There are filters yeah, for that. No way. <laughs> um, I also really liked the scene where... Anne is driving in the rain mm. and again that had like the really cool like pops of blue and mm -hmm. red lighting this is one of the few exterior shots that are in the film but it's really cool architecture triangle shaped stone building that's mm -hmm. in the background when she first goes there mm -hmm. I'm like that's such a crazy building like how do you find that yeah so I think the location scouts did a great job of finding that really cool building and even the shot of the building feels very like Wes Anderson-y like it's very symmetrical mm -hmm. it's very like um architectural and it's like it's a, such a strangely built building you wonder like who requested this nonsense yeah like, but I love it I'm yeah, glad someone beautiful. requested that for sure Another part of Knife Plus Heart that I really liked was the music. I mm -hmm. thought it was a really cool disco-influenced original soundtrack. And it's by a duo, M83, French duo. The band is led by the director's brother. Right. What a cool So dink. what a cool <laughs> dink that perf the perfect score lies within this sibling unit. There's something about, I don't know if it's, like, the weird psychological bond between, like, siblings and twins and stuff like that, but I love when movies, it's like The Matrix being co-directed by two uh, trans sisters. Like, yeah. It's really, 
I feel like it adds a different dynamic. It, has it does. To when you know the person. Yeah, I think so. And I, I feel like when you have that bond and you grow up with someone, there's almost that unwritten second hand that you have where you yeah. don't even need, you just know what they're looking for. Especially, mm-hmm. I'm sure that the director had this movie planned forever Certainly. and the brother probably never stopped hearing about it. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, another one of the weirder things I liked about this movie that I thought was super unique was that lesbian burlesque scene. I've never seen something like that in a kind of mainstream film. I mean, I don't feel like this one is like super underground. I mean, it's on Shudder, so it's easily accessible. And then you had the bird expert with Mm -hmm. the soulful eyes and the bird claw or like a lizard hand. I couldn't, it kind of looked like a lizard, but then he knows birds. So I didn't, I just assumed he got a bird thing yeah i'm like sure you guys know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) it's also important to note that the last slasher movie centered around lgbtq characters was in 2004 with hellbent so Mm -hmm. this is one of the very few slasher films or horror films that deals directly with open queer characters Mm -hmm. do you feel like because i'm less acquainted with the festival circuit and the independent film circuit that people are afraid to go there? Um, as far as the independent film circuit, I would say they're obviously more progressive than big budget films or huge studio films, but America in many aspects is not as progressive as other countries. Knife Plus Heart is a French film and it's a very progressive, very edgy French film. Personally, I attend many genre film festivals, primarily genre films, foreign films, films made by people of color, films made by people with different sexualities, and those are the types of films that I like. I even think that issues pertaining to race in films, like with Jordan Peele's Get Out, mainstream film watchers in America were like, what on earth? Yeah. What tarnation? <laughs> and people who watch movies are like, yeah, we've been waiting. Yeah, we've been saying this mm-hmm. for for a while. That's a very important point, and I will talk about that a little bit later in the episode when I get into queer horror. Mm-hmm. I'll dive a little bit more into examples mm-hmm. of queer horror mm-hmm. and how Hollywood kept it under wraps for mm-hmm. a very long time, and just now it's feeling like queer cinema is finally on the map and being recognized. Knife Plus Heart has a brisk runtime of 102 minutes Mm -hmm. and there are five kills total by the killer and then there's one additional kill that we will get to. Another spoiler warning if you have not seen the film, watch it on Shudder, run it on Amazon. There are specific details that we will talk about with these murders. First up we have Carl who I wrote Anton Yelchin Twink. <laughs> he looks That's like a, fair a little young Anton Yelchin. The film begins with a young man dancing, who this is the character Carl. He is in a nightclub. Then he spots a man wearing a leather mask and goes with him to a room to have sex. The masked man then straps Carl to the bed and kills him with a dildo converted into a switchblade. Mm-hmm brutal yeah that scene rough yeah yeah and not for for me not for the sexual component but honestly the the violence is pretty compelling yeah i mean the screams they are 
chilling. Yes. I was like, I found myself chilling. turning my TV down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was, yikes. it was an emotional scene for mm-hmm. sure. Soon after that scene, the producer, Anne, she decides to change the title of her latest film from Anal Fury to Homicidal, uh, which but, is um, brilliant. Yeah. Which is fucking brilliant. Yeah, oh nice my fan. God. <laughs> brilliant. And it's in that moment where it's like this film, you get those chilling screams and that brutal, violent scene. And then you get this funny moment. Yeah. The homicidal. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And she starts to incorporate fictionalized elements of the actual murders Mm -hmm. into her films. Mm -hmm. There's a scene very early on after Carl's murder where she is being interrogated, I guess, by Mm -hmm. two policemen in a precinct. And then it immediately cuts to that same scene being remade in homicidal. And you almost don't realize it. At least I didn't. I didn't either. And I've seen this movie probably three or four times i forgot about that cut yeah and it made me laugh hard mm-hmm. <sighs> again so brilliant like I, such a fucking good good cut the funny parts of the film in my opinion are more apparent on a second watch because in the first at least i was way too wrapped up in my immediate reaction to the violence which isn't gratuitous it's just you know being a person that's bothered by violence i was right. like holy shit but upon the second watch, I was like, wow, there's actually some humor in there. The first time around, you feel almost bad laughing. I think if they did not have that plot device where she's incorporating elements of the murders... It would have felt inappropriate. It would have, yeah, it would have not have been as funny or... Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have gotten to know these characters. Certainly. I mean, because the way you get to know them is through the porn set. Right. Next, we have Terry. He's our next kill. He's the actor who injects drugs into his arm. Then the masked killer appears, Mm -hmm. and he, in his drugged-up haze, performs a blowjob onto the dildo switchblade, and he's stabbed through the back of his skull, out the back. So immediately, when you're finally coming down from that first chilling murder yeah you're like okay and then there's another and you think and like, like oh, oh the next one's just gonna be maybe a regular switchblade but nope. <laughs> and the killer's mask is pretty scary oh the gimp mask yeah, yeah i don't know I, yeah i guess yeah the gimp mask it reminds me a lot of leatherface from texas chainsaw massacre it's pretty scary in my opinion and you can't tell if it's a male or female wearing it which that only adds to the mystery of this film the anonymity is frightening. Yeah. And I think that the choice of that mask specifically, in my view, was like a nod to the gay leather culture. That kind of, it's like a subculture of a subculture, mm-hmm. basically. There are a bunch of red herrings, so you're thinking, for sure. is it Anne? Is it Louise? Like, Who is your really, best guess? I mean, it's been a while since my first viewing, but... Probably the younger police officer, especially when he gives her the feather and he kind of kicks off the killer's backstory. He was a little more involved than maybe he should have been, or mm-hmm. maybe he should have been involved because he's a police officer mm-hmm. um, or an investigator. And what um, a nod to the relationship between queer folks and the police. Like, Right. Our third kill of the film is Martin. Martin is part of the anarchist girl gang of transgender sex workers that we meet inside the bar. 
Martin is killed in the woods, stabbed in the back by the killer. Yeah. That was, I felt like, a turning point for my humanity for the killer. Uh, Especially yeah. in broad daylight. Right. It, it, it speaks to the, uh, the serial killer, like, archetype, mm-hmm. where they go really hard in the paint in terms of they're on point with protecting themselves and all mm-hmm. those protective factors and then once they start losing that part of them that they get the sloppy kill, they get sloppy right? yeah they get kind of sloppy previously were many people around there was like right. a group of like 10 of them right. so definitely a little bit of sloppiness there but mm-hmm. as we find out towards the end the killer is kind of going through a basically checklist of people essentially, yeah, yeah. essentially like a checklist of characters the next character to be killed is Jose. He was on set when it happened, and he has his throat slit. And this was definitely in front of other people. That scene was compelling as fuck. That one, like, the first one and this one were the ones that I was, like, sitting on my couch. Yeah. Like, damn. Also, it happens. And you're like, I, okay. I think so. The lights go out, it comes back on, and then his throat slit. And I'm thinking is this part of the act or, mm. you know, what's going on? But it clearly was not because uh, Jose is dead. Very dead. Rip. <laughs> Oof. And immediately after that, Louise, Anne's ex-girlfriend, is killed. I feel like the killer was running at Anne to kill her. For sure. Louise interjected and ended up getting stabbed in the heart, which that is like a very literal analogy (laughs) about how Anne felt and now Louise feels. There's some shit. I wish I could remember what it's called offhand, but there's an Instagram account that's like dedicated to when the film's title is said in a movie. Mm -hmm. So it's just like Like a title drop. Yeah, Yeah, essentially. So that one is like this close to being a title yeah, yeah. <laughs> I And you know what I wrote? Oh my! <laughs> this is what my notes say. It says, kill number five. Louise, ex-girlfriend stabbed through heart. And then parentheses, knife plus heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally knife plus heart. You did it. You did it. I think about the Simpsons when they're like, say it! <laughs> All say the time. It. <laughs> Which, that very rarely happens in Jalo films because they're always just so, so off the rails. Yeah. yeah. They have like one tiny little yeah. clue to do with the murders. It's like the potato in the valley in the films about like a business office. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay. No, you're like, this doesn't have anything to do with it. Guys, I need a little bit of context. Yeah, for sure. This brings us to our final kill and is not a victim per se. It is our murderer being killed. Our murderer is a man named Guy. Guy is someone that you've only seen so far in the film in flashbacks and wearing the gimp mask. Along with Guy comes a character named Haim. Haim is Guy's boyfriend. Their romance ends in a very tragic way. Guy moves to Paris, where he starts to have visions of Haim. These visions are triggered when Guy watches Anne's film. So Guy watches one of Anne's films, which features Nans, Nans, who looks like Haim. During the very end of the film, I won't go through all the motions of what leads to this, but Guy is outed as the killer then he is attacked by a group of gay men. One of the men asks Guy if he gets off on killing fags. Then Guy is stabbed. Repeatedly. 
part of the, I feel like the experience of the reveal is having it laid out to you because then you're like, oh, yeah. So that was relevant in typical Jello fashion. They're yeah. Like here's all the plot points. Yeah. At the very end, like the last ten minutes, which like, oh. was very well done in this film. Certainly. Typically, I'd be like, oh, that might be lazy or whatever, but mm-hmm. I think it adds to that throwback quality. Totally. Totally. I've wanted to talk about queer representation in horror, as well as the psychology behind facing monsters, both human and inhuman, for quite some time. Horror is a space of otherness. Over the decades, horror movies have tackled the real-life topics of growing awareness of homosexuality. In the 30s, films touched on the dynamics of queer oppression in society and the military. In the 60s, films were about paranoia due to the organized civil rights movement. In the 1980s, films addressed the AIDS crisis and the mainstreaming of queer culture. Whether it's the victims, the villains, or the sense of camp, the queer community understands these films in ways most straight audiences can't. From 1934 until 1967, movies were shaped by the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code is a set of rules that was intended to keep movies from corrupting, quotes, corrupting, people who watch them. Given that homosexuality was considered either a physical or psychological disorder in the early 20th century, the code removed queer existence from films. For a long time, queerness in cinema existed only in subtext. In order to get their stories on screen, filmmakers had to find creative ways to undermine the system. Even though Hollywood refused to show explicit queerness, they were willing to pay for stories about social outcasts. Dracula's daughter from 1936 featured our main character concealing the truth about being a vampire. Movies like The Bride of Frankenstein and Cat People showed a more humanistic depiction of their monsters. The queer community is no stranger to being demonized. They can relate to the demons, monsters, and outsiders in horror movies. Movies like Hellraiser, Seed of Chucky, Jennifer's Body, just to name a few, have all obtained cult status within the queer community. For far too long, the queer community has enjoyed horror from the sidelines, but we must give credit where credit is due. Who could overlook the not-so-subtle subtext in 1985's Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge? Let the Right One In is one of the best examples I can think of that tackles themes of bullying and isolation, hiding your identity, hiding who you really are. There are a lot of really well-done vampire films that I personally love, and I'd say that the vampire subgenre is probably my second favorite subgenre. Queer themes went from hiding between the lines in movies in the 30s to characters and creatives breaking out almost a century later. Let's not forget that an openly gay screenwriter is responsible for reinventing the slasher subgenre with Scream. Thankfully, many of Knife Plus Heart's best moments stem from a sense of liberation. The film flips the narrative and rebellion is introduced as the final twist in the film, Anne becomes a spectator. She becomes a witness to the events affecting her community. The men in the film are the ones who become empowered, and they are able to fight back when faced with their own enemy, someone who wants to destroy their community. I also must mention that Guy, our killer, he is also a victim. He was targeted and became a monster due to homophobia and fear. Knife Plus Heart takes place in 1979, paving the way to the 80s. Both are decades of fear and hatred for queer people across America. This film could be thought of as a metaphor for the AIDS crisis that would affect the gay community as those in power did nothing. As we hear in the film from the police officer's own mouth, 
the murders of these gay men is not a priority. It's clearly understood that those in power found the queer community to be defenseless and worthy of its punishment. I remember reading with regard to the uh, serial killer, I believe he was in Canada, Robert Picton, but on, um, or no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Robert Picton, it was Lonnie Franklin, the great okay. sleeper, and uh, people in the police department were <laughs> How literally- dare you name the wrong serial killer? <laughs> well, the police, were, <laughs> the police were equitably incompetent, so they literally wrote DNI on certain, uh, like, body bags, do not investigate. <gasps> Fuck. Which is like, damn. When was this? He had a 14-year break in his crimes. It was between <sighs> 1988 to 2002, but he was caught in 2010. Oh my gosh! So, and uh, predominantly because he uh, murdered black women and black prostitutes. So they just determined that this community wasn't worth investigating because they're gonna fucking die anyway. I right. guess was their approach. Fuck that. Mm. Such a strong mirror, different marginalized communities. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a timely film to be be talking about this month. Knife Plus Heart addresses the real-life horrors of being queer and the psychology behind being closeted, coming out, or simply just existing in this world. Lauren, I know you have some thoughts on this aspect of the film. Did you want to dive into that? Certainly. So... I need to preface this by saying that uh, outside of my education in social work, I am not like a. There are certain licensures that are specific to uh, certain groups or certain um, schools of thought in social work and psychology. I'm not a person who um, has a specific licensure related to LGBTQA people, but I do have a minor in women and gender s- sexuality studies, um, so that's been the focus of my career. However, uh, Coming out is a nuanced, complicated, I don't want to say issue, because for the person who's coming out inherently, there is no issue. There should be no issue. It's just them. It's purely dealing with and coping with what happens uh, as a response to Mm -hmm. that. And culturally, we view coming out as being this, like, singular experience There's actually, I've seen uh, some people relate it to, um, there's a phenomenon in really small, isolated towns where uh, a woman will, or a young woman will have a child at like 15, and her belief is, this is what's going to make the community rally with me. This is going to, this is what's going to make my parents give a shit about me. And as it turns out, they cast her as being a whore and a hussy and, you know, this, that, and the other for a lot of queer folks, including myself, like coming out is seen as this like one singular day whereby you just kind of tell everyone, you know, and everyone's like, got it. And then you just move on from there. Like nothing happened when in reality for a lot of people, it's not just a moment, but like a series of moments throughout their life. I mean, we see people who finally come out when they're 65. Yeah, after being married. Right, having having children. Yeah. yeah. I think about my own experience with two loving parents, uh, middle class that was far different than someone who maybe lived in a smaller community, had people who weren't supportive in their lives. Um, 
they may not come out to, I mean, they may not have parents. Maybe they live with their grandparents or their great aunt. You know, those Mm -hmm. dynamics are all different. So there's a million different things that come into play when a person decides to tell people, you know, this experience that's supposed to be empowering and supposed to be an assertion of one's identity becomes way more complicated than that and becomes more about other people than your own experience. Right. So I think assigning any one experience to it would be a farce and this film I feel like does a really good job of explaining the I mean I hate to say difficult because it feels like an understatement but the really difficult and nuanced parts of coming out coming out is murderous it's bloody it's trying it's complicated and particularly within the context of 1979. I mean, I certainly wasn't alive then, so I can't speak to it literally. (laughs) But, you know, I guess I came out in, like, 2011. Way different than 1979. Like, I I can't say I feared for my death, but someone in 1979 would. Guy's character does not come out willingly. Right. He's essentially outed by his father. Mm -hmm. It triggers the entire plot of this Certainly. film is, yeah. is his experience with what he he faced mm-hmm. the so. film is kind of a hyperbolic i think explanation of like the social and emotional consequence of not allowing that people that space because you know i don't think it's necessarily like accurate that everyone who's not allowed that space is going to go kill somebody however the psychological torment of being disenfranchised and then intersect that with your race, your gender, your religion, like all of the various things that encompass our identity, it just gets more and more layered and more and more complicated. Yeah. The more that's added onto your personhood. I think it's important to note too, that like when we talk about how hard it is for folks who feel the need to come out, it's people tend to say like it's difficult because of their identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really like damaging language just because like, their identity and their um, sexuality in and of itself isn't dangerous or harmful or inherently anything but mm-hmm. what it is. It's it's the reaction socially, yeah. which can be fixed. It's, it, you know, there's nothing, like, stagnant about one's identity that's, like, inherently harmful. Yeah. Really all I can think is, with as with any injustice or mm-hmm. any judging of someone that's different, like... Mm-hmm. Those people aren't bothering you. Like, your your reaction is bothering them. Like, right. you're the one that is having a reaction to someone simply existing. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for anyone who's making art surrounding queer culture, where within a culture, I feel like it's more acceptable to fall into tropes in mm-hmm. a way that's it's kind of akin to the reclamation of the word queer. If you are a queer director and you are exploring those tropes as a way to like examine them or laugh at them or like celebrate them in a movie, that's one thing. But when I see like a white male cisgender director who's mm-hmm. over utilizing those tropes, Quentin Tarantino, I'm wondering <laughs> where, <laughs> no, where, uh, I like, mean, he's listening to this. Do not offend him. Yeah. He might look at me the wrong way. 
but when you're when I see someone who isn't a member of that community or who isn't a member of a similarly marginalized community overutilizing those tropes, I'm wondering what the motivation is. Absolutely. Whereas in this film, I felt like they were used artfully and appropriately. And I think Knife Plus Heart does a great job addressing these real life issues in an art house way there was never a moment where they were like haha look at this trans person we're laughing at their expense you know i'm right there with you thank you so much for sharing in regard to the theme of this episode is there anything that you want to recommend to listeners as your flavor of the month so um this one is less with regard to um lgbt folks and more just the topic of marginalization um, particularly given everything that's um, occurring with protests and riots, uh, now officially in all 50 states, by the way. So the book is called Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City. And it's um, all about how Baltimore City was the first to institute redlining. In other words, like uh, districting and uh, delegating neighborhoods, yeah. essentially on the basis of race. Um, right. They and argued on the basis like of school poverty. districts and mm-hmm. uh, property taxes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. To piggyback on that, there's that really good documentary on Netflix mm-hmm. called 13th, which mm-hmm. is all about the prison system within the United States and it reveals the nation's history of racial inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, it touches on some. Whew! very glaringly obvious points when it comes to redlining. I was talking with someone not from my 25-year-old generation about the manifestation of racial and sexual orientation discrimination in modern America, and it really manifests in a different way than what they're accustomed to experiencing, which is, you know, more, in my view, obvious and in-your-face a rainbow flag outside of a coffee shop is not as obvious to people who witnessed Stonewall, right? Mm-hmm. So it it really speaks to, like, the n- nuances of justice and oppression and seeking uh, reparation via riot and protest. Yeah. But did you have another book that you wanted to recommend? I did, and I recommended this one last time, but I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> It's uh, The Body Keeps the Score. It's all about, and it's by um, Bessel van der Kolk. In essence, it um, describes how trauma, and that includes the trauma of oppression, is held in our body physically. And for a lot of people, um, and honestly, even within my profession, it was a huge revelation to see how the trauma of the Holocaust, the trauma of slavery, and the trauma of everyday oppression that we view as like a microaggression manifests itself in anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. And it's harder for those people who are getting care from someone like me because they don't know how to quantify it. They don't know how to say, well, all these small things that you don't necessarily experience that I do daily has an impact on my mental health. Um, That's a good suggestion. As far as my flavor of the month, I have three flavors. Um, they're all movies. It's Neapolitan. Yes. <laughs> it is. We have American, French, and Italian. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> we got three flavors. Uh, the first flavor that I have is Cruising from 1980. Mm. The first murder scene in Knife Plus Heart is very similar to the first kill in Cruising. It stars Al Pacino. It has very similar LGBTQ themes as Knife Plus Heart. 
My second flavor of the month is Stranger by the Lake from 2013. It is a French thriller starring a gay couple, and it also involves a serial killer. My third flavor of the month, Dario Argento's Burr with a Crystal Plumage. This is a classic giallo that I think would pair well with this throwback giallo that is Knife Plus Heart. Lauren, do you have anything that you would like to plug or promote for our listeners? Black Visions Collective out of Minneapolis. They need your support. Donate to George Floyd's um, memorial fund. It's at, two days ago, it was at $2 million. We're really making a difference for his family and in his memory. So please continue to donate. And um, also uh, the human rights campaign. Campaign. Thank you. I kept saying collective in my brain, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, they're great. The human rights campaign, I donate to them um, Mm -hmm. with every paycheck. Luckily, I work for a great company that, one, any donation that I make that doesn't come out of my paycheck, if I just donate, they match it 100%, which is amazing. So I've been killing it in the donation game the past (laughs) couple days because my employer will donate 100% of what I donate. Um, But HRC, they're great. I've been to a couple of their dinners. They have great speakers, and Mm -hmm. it's a really great community. So I second Mm -hmm. that. Also, please donate to your local bail relief fund. Another organization that is dear to me is the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is a national organization that provides crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to LGBTQ and questioning youth. You can find more information at thetrevorproject.org. As far as plugs for the podcast, you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at Jalo Club. I will have some exciting announcements soon about Jello of the Month Club pins. I ordered some new pins for Pride Month. You can follow myself, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at DianaNK. Our logo design is by Vegan Patches. You can follow Matt's Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. The theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. I am so glad that I was finally able to talk about queer representation and horror. I'm so thankful that I had Lauren on the podcast again. Life Plus Heart is very special to me, and I really want to talk about this movie. So if you have any input, please contact me on Instagram or Twitter. I would love to talk about the film. As always, I'm your host, Diana Koch. And I'm Lauren Fioco, licensed master social worker. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Bye.